0: And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one no matter the listener size, which will help, your, help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. greatest movie of all time podcast i'm tom duncan and i'm dana duncan and we're back again to talk about the movie big starring tom hanks so uh we'll just briefly take you through a quick synopsis after a wish turns 12 year old josh baskin played by david moscow into 30 year old man tom hanks He heads to New York City and gets a low-level job at Macmillan Toy Company. A chance encounter with the owner, Robert Loja of the company leads to a promotion testing new toys. Soon, a fellow employee, Susan Lawrence, played by Elizabeth Perkins, takes a romantic interest in Josh. However, the pressure of living as an adult begins to overwhelm him, and he longs to return to his simple former life as a boy. So, uh, first off question we ask at the top of every one of these. Uh, What is your relationship to this film? Well, I saw it on video um,
1: about um, a year after. I mean, this is in the days when we still are having um, uh, DVDs, or excuse me, uh, uh, VHS tapes.
0: Yeah, so, DVDs weren't until I was about nine or ten years old.
1: Yeah. So anyway, it just it's the the technology moves fast,
0: <laughs> especially in retrospect now. Uh, so I remember watching this movie probably I think in high school, and I haven't probably picked it up since. Um, there were a lot of things I certainly didn't remember about this before we rewatched it. Um, But I remember describing it and how I didn't think certain elements of this movie were going to have aged well um, in describing it to Sarah the other night. so, um, But for me, this is that classic example, you know, what is this movie about? And I have a a different version of this, but I've been saying this for years, one of the great paradoxes of life. Uh, You can't wait or you spend the first 21 years of your life trying to be older and you spend the rest of it trying to be younger
1: yeah that's about right and uh, uh, there's there's a few other ones that I've uh, come up with that uh, uh, I won't get into
0: oh Um, you're not what why because they're a little inappropriate yes (laughs) yeah okay fair enough
1: well it's just you know
0: what every guy is trying to do. So yeah, even in this movie, the other thing that immediately sprang to mind of, um, you know, my relationship to kind of the, the whole point of this film is, uh, you trying to beat the gullible out of me. You know, the, this entire movie is about the innocence of, um, a, a child not knowing how to be, uh, incredibly cynical or jaded Or look at the prism of life through um, the eyes of experience, and you know the amount of times that you pulled my chain just so that you know, oh, you're going to get a great lesson in life. And yet, the the entire uh, understanding of this film is is that sometimes it's better to um, have faith and hope in uh, a better world, even if it isn't necessarily like that. Sure. If that's you it, say so, that it that's uh, that's not me saying so. I'm saying that's what the film is trying to portray. Okay, <laughs> I guess I, I I I
1: understand, but I I think it's okay. It's so the, what is this me, film it's about? The to you, is always greener on the other side. Okay, you know he wanted to be a grown up. And then he gets grown up, and now all of a sudden he realizes, eh, you know, being a kid wasn't quite as bad. And I really kind of miss my
0: mom. I suppose. I mean, I, I'm not going to fault you on that one. I, I can see that through this. I guess I, just, I looked at it through a different prism of um, self-examination as opposed to um, more of the literal version of this where it seems that you went
1: yeah
0: okay so uh who did you have down for best performance um tom hanks yeah i i I don't know if you could go in too many other directions um there weren't a lot of endearing characters but he had a lot of uh movement to do for this movie and i believe this is his first nomination um uh, for a Academy Award, which obviously was previewing things to come a few years down the road. But, you know, the amount of different uh, difficulties that he had to do being kind of childish and innocent, yet um, yeah. uh, also acting out through his own nature and being able to convey that um, so purely at times. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. probably a lot harder of a task than it may have looked.
1: I, I, yeah, I mean, you had to come across as being innocent without, um, you know, it'd been real easy to overdo it.
0: Well, or, um, you know, yes, maybe overdue meaning caricature, but, um, there's a understated nature to what he's doing and coming across as and making it real.
1: Okay. Yeah. I, I I can see that, I guess. All right. It's a difficult movie to pigeonhole sometimes. And I know, you know,
0: This is an extremely difficult one because this isn't anything that, like, I have a ton of huge emotions for or that evokes a lot of response out of me. This is one of those that lives a little bit more in its um, legacy a little bit than anything else. Yeah.
1: I, I have a hard time thinking of this movie beyond the context of what it was, which is it was a well-done movie, well-acted and performed with a tight script, and that's it. And really, now that I've seen it again and I had forgotten most of what it was about, I mean, there were a the couple of iconic scenes that were done in it. Um, you know, it's it's okay. You know, um if I'm thumbing through the channels, I'm not gonna go, oh big, I should watch that again. I'm I'm jumping the gun a bit, but um of the movies we've watched, this has gotta be towards the bottom of where I see this as being significant to me personally.
0: Well, you're kind of jumping the script a little bit by getting to that point, but I, I'm I think our rankings will inevitably reflect that. Um Part of this is, is, and again, maybe we're just jumping around a little bit, but um, there are certain elements of this movie that would definitely not be done today. Um, There are sequences of this that might be, the trope gets a little played out, even though the movie's not really that long. Frankly, if the movie was any longer, it probably would have hit like a very... Uh, lull and there is a spot in this movie right around the po- the point where he really starts to like hit his stride of playing an adult that um it, it kind of drops off or at least mellows to this point of boredom it, at least that's the way i felt about it um but if this was any longer it probably would have uh done the same and overall uh I think there is a good premise to the movie here, but ultimately I think it's outdone by the one inclusion. And I'll, I'll just jump kind of to where we usually finish is remaining questions. Why did there need to be a romantic relationship in here? It's the thing about this movie that makes the least amount of sense for what they were trying to accomplish and the least amount of plot sense it plays out like a weird romantic comedy that doesn't age well by comparison because like, even after Elizabeth Perkins realizes he's a 13 year old boy, she's still kind of like clinging to him. And they're even talking about him in like 10 years coming and finding her so that they can possibly have a relationship when it's a little less um, difficult. (laughs) But like, I mean, none of those pieces work in hindsight you're not going to make anything like that today and where we have a little bit different feeling on this whole thing. And it's still just kind of
1: awkward.
0: Well, it's almost creepy.
1: You know, she reaction is kind of like, Oh, I had sex with a 13 year old.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, we, we come to like, not care about her character. We think she's like a shrew. And ultimately, she's not as bad as, I I don't know the actor's name, but her boyfriend starting at the beginning of the movie, and Um, like, he's a yeah, and, you know, the whole lead up into that where, um, you know, he's acting more childish than Josh to, like, get that payoff level is there, but ultimately, she's not, like, a redeemable character in a lot of ways, and yet, all of this stuff is trying to convince us that she's been made pure by the innocence of a child, or being in the yes. presence of the non-cynical nature.
1: Yes, she she is the she is the company barracuda, the shark. She's gonna eat her, be a man eater all the way to the top. And the the her pivotal moment is where she's starting to talk business to Robert Loja. And um, uh, he just turns and says, have a drink. Have a couple of drinks. It's It's a a party. party." Yeah. That's
0: the turning point where it's like, you know, I know what you are. So let up. Well, I mean, they even mention it. He starts going through when she breaks up with what's his name. uh, He starts going through the list of all the people that she's like stepped on or dated or whatever else to basically hop around the top. Uh, stratosphere of the company and so like this whole notion or undermining her spirit um, I don't know if she was redeemed by the whole situation Um, like we get a tonal change for the last part of the movie that seems to shift in that direction but ultimately it's still a weird and awkward situation and she's the one that takes him home where it really should have, like, the Billy, his best friend, is the one that snaps him out of it and gives him that reality check and is the one that was supporting him to begin with. After she realizes he's a 13-year-old boy, I don't understand why she's still sticking around and, like, taking him home and all of the other stuff that's part of this when it should have been the best friend. I guess there isn't a better word than creepy. It's just a weird storyline that, it, for me, it's gonna reflect in my rankings. It's just, it's just one of those things. It was a little cringy. Well,
1: you know, I mean, life is different now than it was. Okay? Oh, I know. And I tell this story, and I'm not trying to be minimize it or whatever else. Okay when I was in high school the senior guys who were scoring with the freshman girls were called studs now they're called felons i I,
0: I know there's some level of like stark contrast in that it's just you know we I, have as a society have decided that
1: there are certain behaviors and conduct that we are no longer going to tolerate or that we have deemed to be inappropriate. And the fact that we have now had generations of women who have uh, realized that their lack of maturity under the age of 16 gets them into trouble. And so we have said we are going to step in and protect them. In this particular case, <laughs> the same thing. The number of times that you've seen women, and I've you read about these all the time now, teachers who will, who will proposition and sleep with their junior high students, male students. And, uh, you know, and it's not, and they go to prison for it. You know, this, <laughs> it's just It's creepy at this point in time. You know, at the time it was released, it was kind of cute. Now it's creepy.
0: Yeah, and I I will say that, like, the evolution on a lot of these things goes pretty quickly. Yes, this movie is, like, over 30 years old, but still, I mean, um, you know, we've, we've evolved a lot on certain social topics in 30 years. Uh, in ways in which it took hundreds of years before that. So, anyway. Uh, All right, we'll get back into the categories here, but um, best minor performance? Robert Loja. Yeah, I I can't fault you for that one. He is an endearing character in this because he seems to get it a little bit more um, than uh, any of the other ones kind of like working for him and ultimately that's why he like sees something in josh um personally i went with uh um jared rushton his uh, little friend billy who i don't know if he's even done anything uh past this as far as like acting work but um i just i think he's kind of like the heart of the movie that kind of grounds it a little bit. And like I said, he gives that moment of clarity or that pullback to reality towards the end of the film. And it really doesn't work without him ultimately. Um, Not only being able to um, help Josh transition through the whole thing, but kind of like um, take those steps um, to like pull him back into what he needed to be to finish the film. So as far as plot devising and the rest of it, and ultimately I didn't think he overplayed the part all that much either. So, um, you know, we've had some very good kid actor performances since, but I just thought it was, it was good for him.
1: Yeah. Well, I, in part, this is, this is kind of, again, one of the climactic moments. This is uh, Robert Loggia, And the reason I'm pointing this out is he was a long time actor in television and movies and doing spot pieces. and, as he got older, and this is part of the whole thing, there was a whole group of men, male actors, who got into their sixties and became sex symbols late in life, playing these parts. And one of the the reason I'm mentioning this is, is the first movie I remember Robert Loja in is an officer and a gentleman, and it's the opening scene of the film where where um, uh, Richard Gere is going to go off to flight school and he is going to say goodbye to his dad, and his dad is laying naked in bed, bare-assed, um, with a girl. And the bare-ass is Robert Loja.
0: Fantastic. I'm, I'm so glad that you're spoiling that movie for me.
1: Anyway. Um, <laughs> God. Uh, and, and that, that is uh, kind of a point where, and I remember women... When that movie came out in the, I think it was like 80, 81, you know, in the high school thinking he was sexy, you know, he's like 63 or 64 years old at that time. I mean, when he's doing this film, he's got to be close to 70. He, he can, he acted regularly into his eighties. Um, I think one of the last big films he did was Blake Edwards, SOB. Um, and, uh, uh, but you know, later in life or later on, he did more bit parts because he developed Alzheimer's, and so he started having problems with his mem or memory and his uh, and memorizing his lines. But he tried to work well into his eighties.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't call that a big final role or movie, given that I have no idea what the hell that movie is. Oh, all, okay. all I understood from that was um, the title. And who Blake Edwards is, but
1: okay, but Julie Andrews is only nude scene in the
0: films. Well, we just up to explicit rating yet again on the podcast.
1: Well, it was it's uh,
0: the entire apparently, film apparently so we've turned into the uh, Mister Skin sponsored podcast.
1: Well, <laughs> the only reason I'm saying that is, is that's the whole premise of the film is is that you know. Uh, Blake Edwards is uh, the character that is the played by Richard Mulligan in the film uh, is Blake Edwards. And they, he has a bomb film and the movie theater won't let him have control of it. So he decides to reshoot it as a, as an X rated or near X rated uh, fantasy. So he's going to put America's sweetheart nude in it. And so it's Julie Anders, who is Blake Edwards wife. And so she does a nude scene. It has Robert Preston, it has Robert Weber. Um, it I'm trying to remember who else is all in it. But okay, it's, I
0: think we've talked more than enough about a film we're not reviewing.
1: Uh, just watch it sometime. Uh, if anybody's interested, it's worth watching once. It's it's a funny film because it pokes fun at Hollywood.
0: Okay. Your most charismatic award.
1: It's hard. Again, I I guess it's still going to be... It's It's Tom Hanks. Yeah, it's got to be Tom Hanks. Because if it's not Tom Hanks, this film flops.
0: Oh, yeah. He's just got that innocent, doughboy look that, you know, plays well and... um, he can, he can play it so simply yet subtly and um, gets the most out of every interaction he has, but everything seems believable. Um, so it, it, it's Tom Hanks for me.
1: In some sense, if you ever, and I don't know if you have, I doubt it, but have you ever watched his the TV, the short live TV show he had? I think it was two or three
0: seasons. Uh and Buddies with Peter Scolari. I think you and I watched that. They had reruns on like TV land, like when it was, or when we were first having it on, like in the early 2000s. I don't really remember anything about it, but. um.
1: In some ways, it was two guys who, you know, the whole premise is is they couldn't find an apartment in New York that was affordable. They found an apartment, but it was in a women's only um, apartment building. So they. Dressed in, or they went and dragged to get in and out of the apartment. And, but most of the film was not that as much as it was the interplay between Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari, who were just two overgrown children um, juggling, um, riding, you know, like unicycles, uh, all kinds of goofy stuff like that. And so, to some extent, um, the character in Big is an extension of the character he was in the film, I mean, in the TV show Booze and Buddies.
0: Well, I mean, that's probably reflected in some of his more early work with um, Splash in this movie and Bachelor Party and some of those other ones where he's kind of like, the young guy in his twenties before he kind of like aged into what he was supposed to become in his thirties and his like impressive nineties run. But, um, you know, a lot of that boyish charm kind of still comes out in there before he kind of like develops into that more every guy role during the nineties. Yeah. He did,
1: he did several films in the eighties that were, because he did, uh, you know, Splash, and then he did, um, uh, oh, Volunteers, and there was another one.
0: And we then, can we can uh, move past it because we don't yeah. need his IMDb page. But all of those films, early films, including um, Bachelor
1: Party, I thought he was just going to end up for a long time being the cheaper version of Bill Murray.
0: Okay, you know, I from the amount of romantic comedies and other smaller things, um, you could say that he was a um, earlier version of kind of like this uh, a few years ago What we had the McConaissance. Yeah. Where like he's a romantic comedy star that's kind of never takes himself too seriously and appears in all of these crappy movies and then just starts putting together slowly but surely some more serious work. Until he hits that final one where he finally... Where he gets to the Oscar pinnacle. So... Yeah. I, I
1: right. think it's some same, same degree. Ultimately culminating in him uh, um, playing in Philadelphia.
0: Well, so. and then Forrest Gump, Apollo 13, Saving Private Ryan, um, Castaway, etc. Like, he yeah. has a huge run during the 90s. Um, yeah to be fair, in no way do I think Matthew McConaughey is the same actor as Tom Hanks. I want to make that clear I'm just comparing their uh career arcs <laughs> okay I like them both individually for different reasons. So all right uh best scene. All right, here are my nominees, and you can add any that you wish. Uh, Teaching the trampoline. Okay. Uh, The obvious, uh, his first day in the toy store and uh, playing chopsticks on the piano. Yeah. The first day waking up as an adult and scaring his mom so that she ends up calling the police because she thinks it's a home invasion. Yes. Um, the toy pitch meeting. I don't get it. Okay. And then him showing up in that god, god awful tuxedo. Yes. Any of those that you'd like to add?
1: No. Those are the biggest scenes available. Okay. So which one is it for you? The uh, dancing on the piano. It's the one scene that I always remember.
0: Um, I'm going to go with the toy pitch meeting because it's it comes back around like multiple times uh, during the course of the movie. Um, And kind of has the jumping off point for where that is. Like I understand that, but I actually have the um, chopsticks on the piano um, being one of the two uh, indelible moments categories. Okay. All right. I could, I could agree with that. Um,
1: so if I can't use that because and it has to go to the indelible moment category, then my my. Um, My pick would be probably the trampoline. And leading into the trampoline, which is, you know, the line, um, like a sleepover. Well, I get on top.
0: You already jumped into the lines already. Yeah. (sighs) I didn't know he had... You you were jumping around. You are talking about every movie but this one half the time. Like, <laughs> where is your focus tonight? Oh, uh, well. All right. So, favorite scene?
1: I don't know. I, I do enjoy the whole scene when he wakes up and he's big, right down to the point where he pulls open his pants and looks, and ooh, <laughs> I guess I am big. I mean it's it's just comical
0: trying to you know him trying to understand what had happened. yeah. Uh, I have, yeah, the first day as an adult because it's the it's the shock value. Um, kind of like, uh, you know, any movie where aliens first arrive, that first initial contact meeting is always going to be the one that kind of like sets the tone of everything else. And so, you know, him waking up and trying to like put on his clothes and do all of these other things, it's just, you know, one of those um, pieces where it, it kind of um, sets the tone of the rest of the movie. So, well, uh, and, and to some extent, what makes it significant is, is everybody
1: has that moment. And I'm not talking about that you get, you know, you grow suddenly, but it's the moment where you realize that the safety net of childhood is over, you know, like the first day you have to work outside of, um, you know, college or in my case, law school. And you realize now this is like adulthood and I'm I'm in charge and responsible. There's a certain aspect of that that is about as confusing and bewildering and lacking in, in understanding as he was experiencing and realizing his body had changed.
0: Well, so I'll throw this out here and let you kind of run with it, but, um, uh, they had a line or a quoted piece, um, of, uh, older wisdom from, uh, the show billions I'm trying to catch up now, but, um, where uh, I think one of the characters is quoted as saying, uh, you're not a man until you bury your father. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Metaphorically or physically in this case, I suppose.
1: Yes. And I felt that. My comment was, is my mom passed first. My dad passed 10 years later. Okay. Which is already, as of today, 13 years. Yeah. Because it was May 13th of twenty or two thousand seven that he passed.
0: Was it Mother's Day? I thought it was towards Father's Day, but okay. nope, it was Mother's Day. Okay. So and, I thought it was June, but all right. My no, bad. it
1: was Mother's Day. Anyway, um, um and I made that comment that when you when you lose your last parent, it is the end of your childhood. As long as you have parents, you have a tie to your childhood. Once you lose your last parent, it's no longer, uh, something that you have a tie to. It's now your past and you get a definite feeling of break in your life where things are just different.
0: Yeah, I suppose that's true. And that's why I kind of threw it out there for you, letting you kind of run with it as we've talked about it a few different times and that's, you know, um, been made more apparent to me as i've increasingly got older so yeah all right uh finally most indelible moment uh i had two and it's the two that like constantly come up um because uh they keep getting referenced I, uh, tom hanks did a cameo appearance on the uh late show with colbert not too long ago doing something with this and uh all the other things but chopsticks on the piano which we've already mentioned and the zoltar machine yeah, I mean, those are the two things from this movie that literally anybody could tell you.
1: I agree. I mean it's it's by far. I mean, when they're showing a classic film uh a montage, um, they always show this th- that clip of the of the uh, chopsticks is really always in every major montage where they're showing how the the range of hollywood i don't know why but it is a classic scene
0: well i think it's it's the playfulness of um childhood and again it, it's supposed to be this like innocent thing but uh, ultimately reminding us uh not to take life too seriously sometimes you know trying to do it behind spreadsheets and um, what's going to be the, the data-analytic-driven thing, whereas sometimes you just have to take it out of the box and play with it in order to know its value?
1: They never really discuss it, but my guess is, or the feeling I get from the length of the story is, is that Robert Loja started the, the toy company and that it was based on his love of toys and his love of the expression or the love of toys that children have. And somewhere right. along the line, you get the distinct feeling by all the meetings that they've lost track of what it is, or their what their intent or what their purpose or mission is. That it's gotten lost in sales numbers and and uh, data and uh, uh, surveys and all this. Right. And it's at that moment in time when Robert Loja lets go and goes back to a time of more innocence and play that he realizes that the company has drifted beyond what it should. And so he changes the direction of the company.
0: Honestly, I I think this is possible. The premise is still golden. That's not what we're complaining about, and this goes back to the earlier conversation. The, The movie shifts tonally when he starts to really hang out with Elizabeth Perkins And they take it in the romantic direction as opposed to um, his being successful at the toy company. And there is a better movie from that jumping off point where you could make something else and it be about work or any of the other things. But by trying to focus on the romantic relationship, it kind of shifts where the movie goes (laughs) and kind of loses some of those aspects that probably could have worked a lot better. Yeah. All right.
1: Right. Go ahead. No, I, 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 we just keep going back to this point again, and I don't, you know, yeah, it's, it's kind of, I don't know. At times, I get the distinct feeling they weren't sure what they had. <clears throat> I think they kind of had the idea originally, and then they're like, "Well, we need to turn this into some sort of a rom com, or we're not going to have anybody watching it."
0: Yeah, I, I, and that seems. To be fair, for how they were doing movies, but um, you know, I, sometimes you got to let a premise play out instead of trying to change it halfway in. So,
1: and, and all sometimes, right. and sometimes
0: it's the studio intervening
1: after the dailies come in because in the original premise of the movie Caddyshack was all about the caddies, but the studio said, "No, we 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 need stars in this," so that's where they started adding. Um, Ted Knight, Rodney Dangerfield, Chevy Chase, and Bill Murray, because the studio didn't like the premise or the direction of the film and required it to be modified in order to continue backing it. I don't know whether the story of this film is in that way, or if they just anticipated that's the direction the studio would want to go and drafted the script accordingly.
0: Okay. Well, I think that's a good uh, stopping point or a good breaking point Um, for one of our sponsors we're back so uh, that uh, puts us at uh, best lines so I have a couple of different nominees and we can throw in um, any ones that uh, you want to put past this so I think I have four here uh, one of which you've already kind of um, buried down but um, so you got a job where you play with all these toys? Yup. And they're gonna pay you for that? Yup. Suckers. Okay. Uh then the randomness of John Lovitz being in this film. Um, uh, see that girl over there in the red? Say hi to her and she's yours. She'll have her legs around you so tight you'll be begging for mercy. Well, I'll stay away from her then. <laughs> uh <laughs> yeah uh what is so special about baskin he's a grown-up yeah okay uh yeah. and then uh this would end up being my uh, funniest line nominee i'm not so sure we should do this do what well i like you and i want to spend the night with you do you mean sleep over well yeah Okay, but I get to be on top. Yeah, Meaning the bunk beds, people. The bunk beds. Yeah.
1: Yep, that's my that's my vote.
0: Well, that's mine for funniest line. Uh, what did you have for best line? Um, I don't get it. Yeah. I, that's one I forgot to mention.
1: I, because, again, that line kind of sums it up. It's like you're going to have all the study and you're going to have all the, the you know, uh, market groups and all this. Ultimately, you know, when you were a kid, we mom and I used to complain because we would spend hundreds of dollars on toys. And yet you were about two, two and a half You would sit with an oatmeal box or, you know, container, put blocks in it, shake it, then open it up, take the blocks out, put more blocks in, shake it, and you'd spend an hour doing that while all these expensive toys are laying all over the floor around you. Sorry. Well, but again, that's where we kind of decided that, you know, Spending a lot of money on toys wasn't necessary. Uh,
0: The best toy that a kid has is his imagination.
1: Until he gets to be about 14 or
0: 15. Oh, no. Depending on um, how confident he is in himself, that may still be his best toy. Okay. Uh, Anyway. All right. Um... So I guess we'll just jump ahead to the uh, rankings. Uh, What did you have down for Legacy? Well,
1: it's a split decision. Yes, this this movie has some legs as far as concept, but some of it's so outdated it drags it back down. So I had to go with uh, above average or, you know, for... Because I'm rating this, as far as Legacy, not just on the films on the list, but all films in general. So I'm going to say seven.
0: Okay, so I went with an eight. And it's n- partly because I have to exclude the that part of your argument, because that's an argument for classicness. There are elements of this movie, as you said, I mean, there there's depictions and... Um, or indelible moments that are part of cinema history and are classic. And this premise has been used multiple times over um, to do different movies all over the place. I mean, I can name probably three off the top of my head that are within the last uh, 15 years or 20 years that have or borrowed this premise, essentially, but in a different
1: form or fashion. Actually, this film borrows a premise because there was a film... From the 60s with um, Robert Crane. It was called Freaky Friday.
0: Okay, and, but
1: even that the was remade. The, the mother and the daughter end up swapping places.
0: Yeah, but that's not borrowing this premise. It's a similar, but it's not the same.
1: Okay. I'm talking
0: directly the premise of a young kid go or becoming older or... There was an, another recent movie that the uh, older adult became a young kid again, you know, type of situation. And you kind of go vice versa. So th- I can think of at least three different movies where this thing has been played upon in a much more direct fashion. So I had it in an eight, but um, that'll average it out to a 7.5. Okay. So impact significance. Seven and a half, eight, somewhere in there. So I went with a seven. So we'll, we'll average it out to a 7.25 uh, on that one. But uh, again, it's probably about the same argument. I, I, really, the, I think the legacy is higher than any particular impact, but the premise has still been borrowed enough <laughs> that it's at least much more of a classic trope by this point than anything else.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, what'd you have down for novelty? Uh, eight. So I had an eight and a half, and it's just simply because, um, there were not a ton of films like this at the time, and there aren't a ton of films trying to do these types of themes, so I I do think, at least for subject material and some of that, it's off on its own. And then even the parts that make it difficult to or maybe cringy, there certainly are not a lot of other classic or legacy worthy films that um are playing in the same category. So um I guess we'll average that out to an eight point two five, but um I, I think that's probably gonna be its strongest category, honestly. Okay, so then that brings us to the classicness score, which I have to imagine you and I both had it rather low. But what did you have? Six. Yeah, that's that's exactly where I had it. I will point out one thing,
1: okay? And I stopped to think about this when the film was getting over. This is directed by Penny Marshall. Um, this had been about four, three four years after she had divorced Rob Reiner. Rob Reiner, at about the same time, started developing his own career as a director. Yeah, Kenny this Marshall's is like brother. that
0: big stretch where he starts. Um, Harry you know. Met
1: Sally. Uh, this is Spinal Tap.
0: You know, uh, films. Oh, what was he had another big one? Um, oh, Princess Bride. What about about this time too?
1: Yeah, and then uh, uh, the American President. Now that's mid nineties. Well, anyway. But it started, and then Penny Marshall's um, brother, Gary Marshall, um, who had been the producer of Happy Days and such, crossed over. He had the Coca-Cola Kid. Um, He had, uh, it was not too long after this, it was um, um, Pretty Woman and such. And then before this even, Rob Reiner's dad, Carl, was directing a whole series of films with Steve Martin From the jerk to the man with one red shoe to, you know, the the man in plaid, etc. And so there's this whole group among where these two families all kind of interwove. And then you have to add in the fact that um, Ron Howard was also in this group. Of all these people that were kind of intermingled, inter... You know, that we're all together. And there's a style of film that they did. They were simple films. They were
0: well-written films. For us to root for him to finally get the one good break that he needs. Yeah. And to some
1: extent, that's kind of the the epitome of of his career. Because he had a huge problem with uh, addictions to opioids and to alcohol. And uh, it ruined his career. Uh, a lot of directors refused to work with him because he was so unreliable. Hungover, not show up, lots of stuff later in his career. But he always seemed to be able to pull back. He'd go on the wagon for a while and he'd rise up. And it got to the point where you know where he was making some movies again in the late 50s and into the early 60s. Then he had a relapse and then he was on television And then he ends up his career in the eighties, um, doing love boat, um, and stuff. But again, it's partly just the fact that he was so likable that people would give him a chance, even though his history, um, was not the best.
0: You, you said opioids there. I do want to try and clarify something because as far as my knowledge, maybe it's my ignorance. Um, you know, opioids, as we currently understand them, um, I didn't think were really a thing until, like, the 80s and 90s.
1: Oh, no. Uh, opioids would include heroin, would include uh, uh, any kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, morphine is an opioid. Oh, mor- 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 morphine addiction was very common. And I think that's where it came about. He was injured in a film. And so he was, of course, prescribed oh, opioids sure. in order to uh, get through filming. And then he ended up addicted.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, and that's kind of the same principle. Um, um, uh, and I'm drawing, uh, I can picture him. Uh, Peter Lorre uh, was a heroine, yeah. her- Or he- Peter Lorre was addicted to heroin. Uh, and it got to the point where Uh, A lot of directors refused to work with him. He had really got his break in Hollywood from, you know, because he had worked with, uh, he was a Hungarian Jew who escaped Nazi Germany in the early 30s. He ran to London and worked with Hitchcock. Uh, When Hitchcock moved to uh, Hollywood in 1940 uh, and then directed Rebecca, he brought Peter Lorre from London with him. But then after a couple of films, um, Peter, or he just couldn't work with Peter Lorre anymore for that reason. And, um, but he went on to still star in several films and have a long career. But it was, it was, it was fairly common at the time.
0: Even so, I mean, you know, he's in probably, Uh, two of the movies that will likely be in our top 100, and that's not a bad career. So. Uh, All right. Uh, That takes us to Best Scene. Um, I have a few nominees. You can add any you'd like after I kind of go through these. Um, Al giving a loan to a veteran farmer with no collateral. Okay. Okay. Uh, Fred protecting Homer by knocking out the customer. Yep. Uh, Homer showing Wilma his, you know, weakest moments. Yes. Peggy waking Fred from his (laughs) nightmare. Bless you.
1: Yep. Sorry. Tried to hit the sneeze button. Sorry. It's all
0: right. Uh, and, uh, Fred visits the, uh, fighter plane graveyard. Um, the initial scene where uh, Alfred and Homer fly home. Okay. Um, Peggy deciding to break up Fred's marriage. And finally, their first night home. Um,
1: I like that story or that scene. Uh, but you don't have one scene that I really like and thought was one of the pivotal moments of the film is him at the banquet, Fred Mart or Frederick March at the banquet telling basically his boss to go stick it.
0: See it's maybe why I, I don't I have trouble with that scene because he's drunk in order to do it. And I, I just I don't understand that side of him to a certain extent. I don't buy it as much, um, which is why I I kind of discount Frederick Marsh in this movie um, by comparison to most other people. But um, I I would agree that it is at least a big scene plot-wise if it doesn't necessarily work for me.
1: It shows the... um... The internal turmoil. I mean, earlier in the film, and I apologize for, but this is the film. This is the line. uh, Last year, kill Japs. This year, make money. Um, It's the um, whole internal conflict that he has about doing what's right versus doing what's necessary. And this was his ability. I think in part he got drunk because he thought this whole thing was a charade. And, you know... The only way he was going to get through it was to drink, and then the drink actually gave him the uh, uh, the strength to stand up and go. You know, I am going to do what's right, and I'm going to basically throw it in your face. And if you don't like it, well, I'll find a different job.
0: Basically, well, in the same regard, I, I will give it some credit because it's kind of going to the point we made before. Uh, they're really only having this banquet or that dinner. To celebrate him when he doesn't make much of his own accomplishment for having just served in the war. Um, and that he should be given this platform because he thought he was doing something that just needed to be done. And, you know, as a result, then you get that scene. So maybe I am discounting it a little bit more than I should. And I'll, I'll grant it that. I, I've just never. I think he works better as the father figure in the movie than that um, offshoot of uh, the stuff he has going on at the bank. You know, his character is supposed to um, be adjusting to his family and his family life and being kind of a surrogate dad for Homer and Fred. And, um, you know, it, it just it kind of takes on that resonance And I think that's where he works the best. But. You know, I, I can I can credit that scene for being pivotal to the plot point. So um, is that what you're choosing for best scene or were you picking one of the other ones I had nominated? No, I think the, the the first night
1: home really exemplifies the excitement and um what was taking place. Um, you know, they want to celebrate being home. And that was a key moment. And I do think that that's really where you develop your relationship with the characters throughout the film.
0: So I I picked that for my favorite scene because I, I think it's the most lighthearted of pretty much the entire piece of the movie. And it's where we get some of the uh, biggest comedy moments. But um, the one I eventually picked was is them initially flying home. And just you know that that initial part of them um, flying over Boone City and you know seeing home for the first time, kind of getting in that that state of mind of reentry and all of the complication that comes with it, and you know even the car ride up to that point of. You know, you have to go home. You have to reintroduce yourself into this life. You really don't have a choice. Uh, I just, you know, there there's a lot more depth to this film, but that's really what it was about to begin with. And that kind of sets forth the rest of the movie. Yeah, uh, them all getting to know each other and having that relationship and moving forward from that point. So um, that I already mentioned, I... Took the first night home as my favorite scene. Uh, what was yours? Um,
1: I guess I, I would say that my favorite scene was the the uh, was the uh, scene with him dealing with the farmer and the loan.
0: Okay, why so?
1: because well, I think it really showed you know it, it was it was a moment where he went from being what he was before to realizing what was what the war had done to him and to others and changed his outlook and his perception of where things would be from that moment on.
0: Yeah, I can buy that. Um, it, it does fit well with uh, the other nominee that you made, um, because I don't think they work um, well without each other. One doesn't go without, you know, but uh, it, it does. Gosh, I am finding it hard to find the right words, but um, give you the certain sense of, where his character's at as far as um, re-entry to the job. Uh, I guess,
1: eh, I, I don't well, yeah. Just think about it this way. He was a bank executive. You know, he had to basically make the choice to go into the infantry as an enlisted man. Because given his background, he probably had a college education in order to be, in the bank in that kind of a position. Um, And so you would almost automatically be an officer. So he would have been having to make a conscious choice that he wanted to do the grunt work that he wanted to do the stuff where there was real action and not necessarily be uh, an officer. And so that fact in and of itself is significant.
0: All right, so we turn to most indelible moment. Um, for me, it's the the culmination of um, all three's war experience and how much they felt they accomplished or uh, how much significance they place on it on a personal level, even if they don't celebrate it. And it's Fred knocking out the customer who basically is trying to tell them that their service is meaningless. Yeah. That, um, they, they shouldn't have been fighting the, or the Nazis. Um, and uh, honestly, you know, I, I'm not as familiar with opinions of the time. Um, it's certainly not somebody that you historically get a perspective from in that post-World War II era. Um, I think for the mo- uh, for the way history's been written or you know kind of how we remember it, it seems like everybody was universally on board with the war effort and um, against you know um, essentially fascism um, at taking over the world and you know just by laws of uh, laws of statistics you know that's not entirely true so when you're confronted with something of that nature where it undercuts something like when you have a centrally defining moment like that in your life and somebody's trying to take that out of your identity i wouldn't expect both of them to respond any less than how they how they did and ultimately fred um looking out for homer by knocking this guy out um even at the cost of his own job um it just kind of sticks with you, where the, thats the the final, you know, action of kind of that second act. Okay, I can
1: I can see that. Um, for me, it was the the point where where um, Homer actually lets Wilma see him without is uh, hooks. I think that that is really what all of the servicemen tended to 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 some extent wanted was to be vulnerable to somebody, um, but felt guarded in doing so. They didn't want to feel vulnerable to anybody. And the moment he let himself down to that, it opened him up and allowed him to actually, Love.
0: Well, and to feel that he could be, I think that's the bigger part of it. I I don't think he had a problem with loving Wilma. He, and it's a problem for all of us, is that some of us just have, you know, I've had this a lot in my life. You don't always feel you're lovable. You know, that there's something wrong with you, that, that ultimately somebody, if you show them your biggest flaws... That um, you're going to uh, be scorned for it, and yeah. it it does provide again that certain emotional weight that um, you wouldn't otherwise see. So, all right. So before we get into um, best lines and the scoring, uh, we'll take our usual natural break. All right, uh, that takes us to uh, Best Lines. So I have a couple of nominees. Um, This is one where I'm going to withdraw our normal funniest line category because, you know, there were a couple of light moments and some places where I laughed, but I I don't think this is that kind of movie. So, All right, um, Millie Stevenson, we never had any trouble. How many times did I tell you I hated you and believed it in my heart? How many times did you tell me you were tired of me, that we were all washed up? How many times did we have to fall in love all over again? Yeah. Yeah. I, You know, that one does stick out to me in that that, um, scene where um, Peggy's trying to determine herself to break up Fred's marriage. And it's just simply, you know, you sometimes lack a certain level of perspective um, when you've never been in a full relationship or been married for an extended period of time. When you're younger or you're single, you know, sometimes you don't understand how difficult it is to maintain such a long relationship. So it's it's a reality check of sorts.
1: Well, and most people don't seem to understand that um, – there's very few people that you can really be your meanest and nastiest to because you completely let your guard down with one person, usually your spouse. And that's the problem. I mean, you say and do things to your spouse that you would never do to other people.
0: Well, it might be a lesson I'll eventually have to learn, but, I, I certainly don't understand it in the same way. So, well, you, were, you
1: regret it even more than if it were anybody else. But it just, you know, when it becomes, you know, it's just, it just happens. It's because you don't feel like you have to put on a persona with your spouse that you do with other people.
0: So the next one. Uh, Homer explains his character arc. I didn't see much of the war. I was stationed in a repair shop below decks. Oh, and I was in plenty of battles, but I never saw a Jap or heard a shell coming at me. When we were sunk, all I know is there was a lot of fire and explosions, and I was on the top sides and overboard, and I was burned. When I came to, I was on a cruiser. My hands were off. After that, I had it easy. That's what I said. They took care of me. Fine. They trained me to use these things. I can dial telephones. I can drive a car. I can even put nickels in the jukebox. I'm alright, but, well, you see, I've got a girl. She knows what happened to you, doesn't she? Sure, they all know. They don't know what these things look like. Yeah, yeah. That is a good line. Well, it just, it gives his character arc within uh, a few lines. All, all you'll need to know about where he's going to be for the rest of the movie is in that introduction. And I, I think it's no coincidence it's in the early stages of this movie. So, uh, next one. Al um, reacting to uh, Homer's homecoming. Uh, They couldn't train him to put his arms around his girl or to stroke her hair.